are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast, a podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands and I am married to a Palestinian. We live in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and we run Singer Cafe and Al Chisar Bar in Beit Sahur. Before moving to Palestine in 2013, I worked as a teacher and tour guide in the Netherlands. I have a degree in history and in tour guiding and many years of tour guiding experience. Due to the COVID pandemic, tourism in Palestine came to a complete halt and that's why I started Stories from Palestine podcast in August 2020. This is the second year of the podcast with every week on Monday a new episode about the history and heritage of Palestine as well as the reality of life today. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. Welcome back, everybody, after the Christmas holidays and sliding into the new year, 2022, and after a month of podcast break. Personally, I really needed that break and I would not have been able to produce new episodes with my children around at home, but we did not sit still and do nothing. So let me update you. Just before Christmas, the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism announced that we could register for the exam. That's an exam we need to pass in order to obtain the tour guide license. So I collected all the paperwork and I registered for that. And of course, the ministry does not yet know exactly when the exam will be held, but it will be somewhere in the end of February, beginning of March. And then we visited several archaeological sites, interesting sites during the holidays. And my daughter and I, Louise and I, we started making short video blogs that we post on YouTube. So if you follow the Stories from Palestine YouTube channel, then you can see those videos and we are still working on some of them. So there will be new uploads soon. Don't hesitate to sign up for the mailing list because then you will receive new episodes of the podcast and of the videos and other interesting information in your mailbox. You can find the links in the show notes of the podcast on how to sign up for the mailing list. And you can also find the link to the new web shop. There you can get merchandise because we worked on a new logo with the Palestinian artist Ayat Arafah and he used some drawings of my children to create a very nice logo that reflects much better what the podcast is now than previously. So you can order all kinds of products, uh, bags, mugs, stickers, pins, phone covers, notebooks, t-shirts, hats and lot of more products with a print of the logo or even with prints of the separate drawings. And in this way, you can help promote the podcast and you support it financially. One of the things I did earlier on in the holidays is that I visited the Al-Aqsa compound, the Haram al-Sharif, or the Noble Sanctuary. We had a special permission by the Aukaf. And for me, it was probably one of the most amazing days of my life. And I wish I can be there more often. It was so special really so beautiful 
And after the visit, I had a meeting with Dr. Yusuf Annatsha. He's an Islamic art historian and he served in the Aukaf for about 40 years. He wrote several books on Jerusalem and I recorded this interview in the heart of the old city, very close to the Aqsa Mosque. Maybe before we get into the questions, can you briefly introduce yourself, who you are and what is your relation with the Al-Aqsa compound? With the adhan, background, background okay. sound. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Lovely, nice to meet you. Thank you for your interest and, and wish you and your audience enjoyable and informative listening. Simply my name is Yusuf Natche. N-A-T-S-H-E-H. Not Nietzsche. <laughs> A good way to remember it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, because though I live under occupation, but I'm still optimistic. And I consider myself, or I see myself as an art historian, especially a historian for Jerusalem architectural developments. And that makes me really involved in history. So to understand architecture, you need some history, you need knowledge, because stones also can speak. If you can address them, really, they can, they can tell you many hidden stories. I consider myself also a lucky person because I grew up in the old city of Jerusalem, I keep visiting all my childhood memories and I left the city just for two reasons, for my personal travels and for my education, which is occurred to be in Cairo University for my BA and MA and London for my PhD. My thesis was about Jerusalem, 16th century public building. So to some extent, I am an Ottomanist. But, you know, I teach at Al-Quds University right now. I used to teach in many Palestinian universities, but all of them in part-time basis. So this is more or less my background, but also I complied books. You have one of my favorite books. It's around Jerusalem. And what is interesting, that there is a special tour for women architecture in Jerusalem in order to please my wife, my daughter. (laughs) 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 So that's something really I consider that Jerusalem needs more light for women activity. Because, you know, Islam, Arabs in general are uh, most probably is a patronate society. But mothers, sisters, female, actually it's more than half of the society by what they are doing in the Palestinian society. Not in Islam, just but through Jerusalem history, we have really many, many intellectuals, women, who loved Jerusalem and gave Jerusalem best of its architecture. 
in Islam, we have Khaski Sultan, we have Sittunshuk, we have the mother of uh, many princes, uh, khalifas. In Byzantine period, we have Helena before even, we have Edokia, we have Melisinda. So it's long serious actually of this, but unfortunately these names are hidden and not well known and not even well represented. So how we can speak about a culture or a society without even giving the right chair for the female, the woman? So this is my intention that there is something to add for this season. But one of my books, which I consider as one of my sons or a family member, and it is now 24 years old, is the big book which is named Ottoman Jerusalem, The Living City. It's two big volumes written by many scholars, but I complied the second volume and I shared also a great part of the first volume. And as I told you, I consider it one of my family members. So whenever someone asks me, how many kids do you have? I say, five. <laughs> so name them, Ottoman Jerusalem is one of them. So more or less, as you can see, or you can recognize, Actually, I wear many hats. Yeah, you do. And what is your relationship? Because we're going to talk about the Haram al-Sharif, al-Aqsa. I just came from a beautiful visit there with the Awqaf. And I think you also was part of that. Can you say a little bit about that? Actually, once again, I consider myself a lucky person. Why? Because when I was six years old, seven years old, The mosque, Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, Al-Haram Al-Sharif, used to be my daily route to go to my elementary school. So I used to live just 200 meters from here, and my school used to be just about 400 meters. So almost every day, I should pass through Souk Al-Qattanin, going there, then I will go to my school, which is occurred to be what we called Al-Madrasa Al-Umariya. That means Omar Ibn Al-Khattab. But it is more than this and that. It is really where is the Anatonia Fortress. It is where is Pilate's residential when he judged Jesus Christ. It is really the first station of the cross. It is also a mausoleum from the Ayyubid period. It is a theological school from the Mamluk period. And all of this history, it is in my elementary school. So the route to the mosque or the golden dome or whatever you will see, this is part of my identification to the extent that sometimes you pass it without really big recognizing what is going around you. I mean, the beauty, the simplicity, the arrangement, the whole picture, that you are so accustomed to it, that it's routine work. You don't pay attention to what it must be really recognized. So this is my childhood, this is my teenagers. But going for my BA and MA to study Islamic art, Islamic architecture really, coming back, it's like a person who was sleeping and then he woke 
up seeing few things that, what, how come I don't pay attention for such an architectural element or a beauty? Now I understand why Western tourists used to stop to imagine, to photograph, to ask. There is something in this. So this is two things. First, my relation with the site as a person, normal one feel attached, but without comprehending what it's behind the beauty or the design or the significance. It is like this, that suddenly you are attached. This is part of your set. Later, the attachment is becoming more logical to reasoning, to see what sort of beauty, what is really behind such an approach in the architecture or in the site itself. That really augmented or continued that when I finished my MA, I got a position in the Awqaf administration. The Awqaf, it means literally in Arabic, to dedicate or to make some shirati according to specific provisions. But the moment you own something and you give it a waqf, it will not be your property. It will be for the sake of the God. It will be for the benefit of the public or according to your conditions. So I work with the Awqaf as an institution who are responsible for the administration of the whole compound, which is called Al-Aqsa Mosque. That also really strengthened my understanding of my specialization. I was so lucky that I got a position where is the oldest Islamic monument still exists all over the world. It is the Dome of the Rock. It was constructed in 691, by Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. And as Rishbun say, as other scholars, we are so lucky that we see the Dome of the Rock as it was constructed by Abdul Malik. What does that mean? It means that the Dome of the Rock, since its construction up till now, almost though there was almost in every 30 years, half century, a restoration project, but it kept its authenticity. We see it as Abdul Malik constructed it. It is really a reflection of how Muslims really appreciate art, how they convey their ideas, their respect in artistic way, whether it is abstract or whether it is in spiritual way, or if it's something, repetition, and that is so important and rare. Because where we could find such an important building associated with the most important miracle of Prophet Muhammad, the night journey, really, and its implication, and you see it in the same size, in the same plan, in the same location, almost with the similar or the same decorative elements. However, 
one should be aware that certain minor changes took place, such as changing the mosaics, which used to cover the upper part of the exterior walls with tiles by Suleiman the Magnificent. And other projects also maintained the Dome of the Rock, but most probably all of these projects touches the clothes, never ever reaches the skin. So we have the same number of columns, the same number of aisles, the two octagons, the same area as I mentioned, and where one could found a timber dome which really date back to 1,000 years as a structure. Surely, in certain museum, maybe we'll found a piece of wood timber as a souvenir, as a work of art, but not as a structure. So the Dome of the Rock has actually is made up of two domes, inner dome and outer dome. Both are of timber which date back to the Fatimid period. That means 1,000 years, but the Umayyad, since they are from the 7th century, almost 1,400 years old. So that add to the value of the building itself. Also, one should remember that in addition to the Dome of the Rock, we have what is considered Al-Aqsa compound. Al-Aqsa First of all, it's not a building. It is an open space. It is a living space because it includes the Dome of the Rock, Al-Jamia Al-Aqsa, more than 30 theological schools, many fountains, aisles, minarets, platforms, domes, whatsoever. So I am lucky that I have the chance to work in the Aukaf administration as early as 1977, and I sat there for 40 years. This is one of my best years. 1977 is the year before I was born. <laughs> so this is history. So gradually you will start to understand the significance. You would say to yourself, oh my goodness, how come I didn't notice this beautiful script? What is the implication? And so, with your inner attachment, heartly attachment, you need to support it with your mind, with your uh, analysis, classification. And that really became, for me, as a place which I feel really that a sort of integration, a sort of identification, it is for me as a Palestinian boy, as a Palestinian resident, whenever uh, the Dome of the Rock is mentioned, it means part of my heritage, part of my past. It is really a reflection of my existence. Yeah. And for my future, this is really worry me always what is going to be in this site, the oldest standing Islamic monument all over the world. Yeah. With its values, this building, along with Al-Aqsa Mosque, really, has many universally human values. If one just for one moment 
you will see that here it is the oldest Islamic structure. So, so we have historical value. Religiously, Prophet Muhammad prayed in this spot before any buildings was constructed. So there is an attachment. There is a connection to Islam. One could wonder why, what is the reason, what is behind that according to Muslim belief that Allah ascended Muhammad from Jerusalem. Could not he do that from Makkah, from another spot? Why? So it is the intention really to connect between Jerusalem as a historical city, as a religious city, to be as part of Muslim faith. Here you will see, I keep saying in my books, in my most recent one, that surely Jerusalem is a unique city where one could find a very tidy city which is just less than one square kilometer where the three monothic religion are competing, are proud, would like to own, would like to govern parts of Jerusalem. Surely, so difficult to find. There is Mecca, there is Medina, but this is for Muslims. There is Varnasi, but this is for the Hindus. There is Lhasa, but this is for the Tibets. So you have the Vatican, but Jerusalem is sort of... So I keep saying Jerusalem is a city on ground, but its roots go to heaven. Why? Because whenever you approach a Muslim or Jew or a Christian, whenever he would like to prove his attachment to the city, his right, his uh, objective, uh, his priorities, he will keep telling you religious uh, stories. So heaven, <laughs> it is the city of God, the city of peace. But whether peace is here or there. So this is how you will see that Jerusalem with Al-Aqsa Mosque, with the Church of Holy Saprika, with other places, really are really reflected, imagined in the person of people. They rarely, unless he is a scholar or is aware, will speak about his social life or his uh, secular life. All of them will go directly to religion, whatever miracles or whatever. And this is the city of God. This is the city on ground, but it's heaven. And believe me, even Jerusalem, I think, before the three monothic religion really succeeded to siege the city for their heritage, even in pagan times, Jerusalem used to have more than its locality. It used to be a sacred city in its regional concept and regional pretext. So surely the city is unique. It's not that big city, but it is really a spiritual one. Could you say something for people who are not so aware of Jerusalem as a city? We are uh, the, the Temple Mount, they call it. Can you say something about that? Like the history of that mountain? Why is it important for the three religions? And how do people here see the claims maybe of the Jewish people of this mount? Look, first of all, from academic point of view, we were taught in our universities 
in our ethics. Whenever you name a place, you name it according to its existence, to its present reflection. You can't name a place which was given 2,000 years ago without any implication. For a Palestinian, for a Muslim, to name the area, the Temple Mount, instead of saying Al-Haram al-Sharif, especially when you speak about its recent history, its Islamic history, it's an eradication, it's an replacement, really. It's like calling someone, his name is Smith, called him Muhammad or whatever. So names in Jerusalem, in Palestine, in the Holy Land are so sensitive. They have implications. Names, it means the ownership. It means the right of a place. So how come that you will ignore all the 1400 years of architectural development and you will keep naming it before 2000 year as a temple mount. It used to be a mount. It used to be a temple. We really understand such a development that temples were built over temples or over the world. A charming or a strategic place or good place, it's really changed hands, really. But while you have the Dome of the Rock, you have the beauty of the architecture, you have the living site, you keep taking it back to the past, that's really, really. If someone speaks about early Bronze Age or Roman period, it could be comprehended that he will use. Yeah. But to insist that to name the mosque, Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, as the Temple Mount, that really not accepted. It is not academic. It is It really bears a smell of politics, a smell of really distortion. So one should be aware. And you can even consult Keith White Lamb in his book about the silencing of the Palestinian history, the reinvention of Israel, how he speak about names and its implication. He says names in the Holy Land, in Palestine, in Jerusalem, never ever being neutral. So one should be aware about what is it. Yeah. Suppose that someone would like to name you according to his judgment. That, yeah. Okay, that doesn't mean we are negating or we are uh, ignoring uh, the complicity of the architectural development of that the area exchange has. But how come if I will go to Varnasi to see a, a new temple and I will give it another name or something. I will go to the Vatican and I will give it. However, this is how Palestinians really see. So and this issue, it used to be so important, so sensitive that the UNESCO even really tackled with it in almost the last few sessions and councils. And you can see this is Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is how we name it, really. This is how it is known through 1400 years. So this is one thing. Concerning the other claims, really it's so difficult that certain Israelis are being what we call ideological visits or provocation visits. From our point of view, as Awqaf, as Muslim, as academic, 
We are not against anyone to come to visit, regardless of his ethnics, color, religion, nationality, provided that he will behave as he will do in any religious site all over the world. We are not asking more than respect, but to come for justification or to come for really having new plans for replacement and to provoke and to say that the Dome of the Rock should be dismantled, should be changed, should be conveyed to Saudi Arabia, that is in order to pave the way for the reconstruction of the Third Temple. This is something which touches the nerves of all the Palestinians, the Muslims, the Arabs, really. And that's what makes certain young Palestinians really feeling that they are the protector of the mosque. Whenever they hear a rumor or a breast leakage that a penetration or an, a provocation visit or a, really an attack from right wing are planned for Aqsa Mosque, all of them will come and will summon and they will really do their best to defend that. And so this site, though it is supposed to be peaceful, spiritual, but it is also the place from which the spark of any turmoil or confrontation could started from here. So it seems for any visitor in these days that it is calm, it is peaceful, it yeah. is beautiful. This is a false impression. Yeah, I was aware of that when we were just walking there, that it felt so peaceful. And I saw a lot of women sitting and studying the Quran and just reading. And, and then I realized that in any moment, if some settlers decided to come and attack the place or walk, the, it, it can change. I would like if you can take the, the listeners, because it's audio, a podcast, on a quick sort of uh, visual tour over the Haram al-Sharif. We talked a bit about the Dome of the Rock and uh, there is the mosque. We learned that we call it the Kibli Mosque. There's the Marwani Mosque and then there are some other important domes. Maybe you can mention a few of the most important ones. Okay, Al-Aqsa Mosque which sometimes is named or called Al-Haram al-Sharif, the Nobel Sanctuary, or the Jerusalemist Holy Mosque, Al-Haram al-Qudsi al-Sharif. All of them, it means the whole compound, which located in the southeastern part of the old city of Jerusalem, it comprises almost 100 44 dunums, which it's make about one-sixth one of the old city of Jerusalem. It has three levels as a result of the topography of the area. We have the underground one, where you will find Al-Marwani, Old Aqsa Mosque, Al-Bab Al-Rahmi wa Bab Al-Tawbi, the Golden Mosque, Al-Buraq Mosque, and other cisterns. So this is the underground. We have the level of Al-Jami' Al-Aqsa, which someone called Kibli, but it's not that famous. It is a new name to uh, differentiate between what is Jami', what is Masjid, but both are translated to English literature to mosque or congregational mosque or a mosque. So 
And we have the level, the third level, which is the platform of the Dome of the Rock. So it is a three layers, three levels. As I mentioned, this is the reflection of the topography. As I paid your attention before, it is a living site. It comprises mosques, halls. We have a library, the good one. We have a museum. We have a center for the restoration of the Arabic Muslim manuscript. We have the Awqaf administration. We have the guards. Also, we have many offices. And also, we have what we call the Sufi Foundation, cells for retreat, domes, monumental domes. We have arcades, we have fountains, minarets, really upstairs, downstairs. So it is not a building, it is a vivid site yeah. complex. So we have theological schools which constructed around the Al-Aqsa Monks, especially in the northern and western sides. There are also open spaces for retreat, for prayer, for gathering. We have platforms. So really, it is so difficult to convey it without seeing certain photographs, but I depend on the insight yeah. of your listeners. Yeah, I will, I will definitely, on social media, I will share some of the videos in the photos that I took. There was one especially that uh, caught my eye, which is at the Dome of the Chain, mm -hmm. which is right next to the Dome of the Rock. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful, and it almost looks like it's a, a mini version of the Dome of the Rock. Can you say something about that? This is older than the Dome of the Rock. Yes, by one year. And we have two theories about it. The first, it is, as you mentioned, a prototype or a market or an example or uh, something that Abdel Malik will understand how the big project will be or a plan or something. But there are two main difficulties to accept such an opinion. First of all, the Dome of the Rock has the walls are closed while the Dome of the Chain are open. It's like Odical. Also, the Dome of the Rock it eight octagonal sides while the chain 11 sides. So there are minuses. Other people consider it that this is the place where the treasury used to be. But that means you have to be escorted for 24 hours. So exactly, we don't know. But we have other also folklore stories, really, or legendary stories to explain why it is the Dome of the Chain. And the story says that there was once a chain hanged from the heaven and people used to go there for a blessing. And even whenever they have to do certain transactions or uh, commitment, they will be doing it there. And once, this is a biblical story actually, but people would like to hear such stories. But surely it's so difficult to find the foundation or to be accepted as logical, but it's something to convey what certain time people used to believe. So it says that a man entrusted another fellow with big sum of money, gold. And when he asked for his honesty or amana or treasures, the man denied that. And he said, no, I give it to you. Why you ask it for the second time? So 
He said, no, you didn't. He said, I will go to swear beneath the chain, right of the chain. And it used to be a sneaky and a cheaty person. So the story says that he melted the gold coins in a wooden stick. And the moment he was there, he gave the stick to the person in order to hold the chain. And he swore that, I swear I gave you your money. <laughs> because it is unjust and it is false and it is cheating. So the chain dropped from heaven. So this is a lovely story, yeah. but it has no basis whatsoever. It, but this is a story that more story, people yes. that tell to people each other. People would like to hear, even they forget that it is a myth or it is a, they will keep yeah. it. Yeah, this is now the reality, the truth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you keep, this is a myth, but they believe in it. People need stories. Yes, surely. Yeah. And so we don't know. No, we, we don't know. Stories. There is no written account, anything about the Dome of the Chain, where they... No, there is, but uh, whether it is reflects the reality or it is the fa historic fact or it's not historic, this is something else. We know that it is constructed by Abdel Malik. We know it is adjacent to the Dome of the Rock. We know that it could be a moquette. It could be an example. It could be something to be followed. But it could be a treasury also. Because there are certain also evidences that in other Syrian mosques, the treasury used to be in the open courtyard. So you have to accept. Yeah, it makes sense. In Jerusalem, the most beautiful things that it's yeah. like a good it's movie without a specific end. No end, you, you never know. To, you have to figure, you have to really yeah, it's true. make efforts. Yeah, it's true. And then to choose what end you prefer. Yeah, most of the sites, there is always that, like, could be, they say that. Yeah, it is true. But it's like a twin. I consider them as a mother and daughter. Yeah. For me, really, this is another story. Another very beautiful thing that we saw today, with also an unfortunate history, we went into the Aqsa Mosque and we saw the uh, minbar. Yes. So, yeah, you, you walk in and you walk towards the mihrab, which is the prayer niche, and there was the minbar. It's completely made of wood. And then we went to the museum and we saw that the original one was burned. Can you say something about the history of the original one and uh, what happened? Actually, this is one of the tragic events which took place in Al-Aqsa Mosque in the 21st of August, 1969, when an aroused fire by Michael Dennis Rohan, an Australian subject, put the fire in Al-Aqsa Mosque. So he destroyed that pulpit or that minbar. That minbar really was so significant and it really holds many values. The story behind that, that many people think that this is Saladin Bulbit Minbar. But the truth about this Minbar, it is made by the Lord of Salahdin, the leader of Salahdin, the warrior Nur al-Din Zinki. Zinki was the master of Salahdin, and he is the son of Ibad al-Din. Is from a Seljuk dynasty, and Nur al-Din used to have a vision 
he fought against the crusader he was mujahid warrior he defended islam he was believing in his task he used to be a righteous person and he even pressed saladin to come and to cooperate in order to siege the existence of the crusader in Palestine and in Syria. So his vision was that Jerusalem should be liberated. And believing in that, he ordered in advance, 20 years in advance, to make a gift to be presented in Al-Aqsa the moment he will took it from the crusader. And he ordered that in Aleppo, where is the wood and the timber workshop used to be very advanced. This pulpit really is, you'd have hundreds of thousands of pieces without any nails, without any glue, and it is like jokeling together. So it is really a piece of art with its decorative elements, with its architectural design, with its script and the tiny things. So that member, when Saladin took Jerusalem, liberated Jerusalem from the crusader, he ordered that the mosque should be restored. He restored the mihrab and ordered a pulpit to be built. But the colleagues of Saladin said, oh, Saladin, Nuruddin, your master has already prepared this pulpit. He said, if it's so, please stop working on the project of the pulpit. And he ordered that the pulpit should be brought from Aleppo to be installed in Jerusalem. So it has a spiritual value. It has an artistic value. It has a historical value. It is really something, it's not just a piece of wood. No, it is a dream. It is a vision. It is a project. And all of these mental values really destroyed by burning the member. We have a new replica, but surely the same from technique point of view, but where you can find the dream of Nuruddin, the reflection of how the crusader was here, what is the response of the Muslim who were against them, and what circles of uh, fighting really used to be here. Nuruddin is in the middle. The last is Salah al-Din. The first is the Artukid, and also we have the Mamluk. So the pulpit really it has a different meaning, and Arabs, Muslim, Palestinians never ever accepted the Israeli verdict in the court that this gentleman is mentally ill. No, they believe that he has the intention, he planned his work, he has a plan, he put his plan in work, and his intention was really to destroy the mosque in order to be in accordance with certain people who would like to see the mosque destroyed in order to pave the way for the rebuilding what the fanatic Israeli considered the third temple. Yeah, and maybe can uh, make a bridge here to another question I had regarding the Wailing Wall, because uh, we always see on TV that Jewish people are coming to the plaza, which I know used to be the Moroccan quarter, and it was destroyed so that they can have a plaza, to the Wailing Wall, which they make it sound like the Wailing Wall was part of the Temple of Solomon. So what is this wall 
that we see around the Haram al-Sharif? First of all, the name is Al-Buraq Wall. Al-Buraq, according to Muslim, carried Prophet Muhammad from Mecca to Jerusalem at the night journey. So it's Al-Buraq. It's an animal with a human face. This is the tradition. This is the story. And it says that certain courses, which used to be at that time, and Prophet Muhammad tied Al-Buraq there when he performed his night journey inside Al-Aqsa Mosque. And it is a Muslim waqfri. The first few courses, surely they are Roman, from Roman period, as is the corner of the mosque. But the upper courses, it's the rebuilding of Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. How one could imagine that a mosque will be constructed with big use without taking care of the walls? So it is understandable through engineers, architects, that the recent wall or the Western War or what the Muslim Qusal Burak War, it's reconstruction of the Umayyad Bir. And it is very memorable and still really alive the incident in the fourth decay of the last century, which we called Al-Buraq Revolution, when a dispute arises between the Palestinians and the Israeli community that they own or that wall belongs to the temple or belongs to the Jewish heritage. So we have the League of Nations that they sent a committee with the three persons, and they investigated the whole area, which is the committee of show. And they later, after investigation, providing proofs, documents, declared that Al-Buraq Mosque is a Muslim property, and it's part of Al-Aqsa Mosque. When the Israelis came here in 1967, they destroyed completely the Moroccan quarter, the destruction of a complete neighborhood. So now it is becoming the newly invented icons, symbols of the Israelis, that soldiers are going there to swear. It's becoming really the most visited sites according to the newly Israeli approach or tradition. But that will not really deny that a United Nation, a League of Nations, sorry, in 1930s, it used to be a clashes, and they investigated historically the area, and Muslim provided them with many, many documents which prove that it is a waqf, it is a Muslim property, and Jews never, ever in their history owned the wall as its architecture fabric represented in these days. There is one more uh, place and it also connects to, uh, I just want somebody on the podcast to explain this. We just passed by one of the ablution fountains of Kaitbai. And this is a Mamluk leader, Sultan Kaitbai. And we see 
a lot. So we have from the Umayyad period, from the Fatimid period, and then later we have Mamluk and Ottoman. For many people, all these names don't necessarily mean anything, and especially Mamluks. So in Jerusalem, as well as in, for example, Hebron, you see so many beautiful buildings in the Mamluk style. Can you explain who were the Mamluks and what is so specific about their building style? The Mamluks, originally, they were slaves. You can buy, you can sell this version. It's what we call slavery. We call in Islam Riq, Abd, Jaria. And their formation really dates back to the last sultan of the Ayyubid dynasty, Saleh Najm al-Din Ayyub, who in difficult circumstances were rivals between families, untrusted armies from the Khawarizmiyya, the chaos with the crusader, internal, external, reached a conclusion that he needs soldiers, an army which be loyal to him. So he started to gather young warriors and to train them for the basic of Islam and how to be a good soldier and fighter. I am not exaggerating if I told you that the Mamluk military school or training could be easily likened like West Point or St. Hare's College that time. They were dedicated to learn the techniques of sieging, fighting, confronting, being flexible, energetic as a young. So after 20 years something, these youngs grew up knowing their master and they were loyal to him. And that moment really reached when Louis the Ninth from France succeeded to attack Egypt, to take Demyat, to take the coast coming from France through the Mediterranean to be stationed in Cyprus and coming with belief in his mission that he is going to liberate the Holy Lands from the infidels, from the barbarism. And he reaches Al Mansura, Al Mansura, which is very close to Cairo. At that moment, really, the Mamluk, as a trained people, succeeded to stop Louis the Ninth and even to take him as a prisoner. And the last Mamluk dynasty died. His son was not capable. So the Mamluk started, or their state is coming from the Ayyubid with this turmoil, with this conflicting. So they did three main things in the Muslim world. First, they succeeded to win the Mongols in Ain Jalut. They succeeded almost 80 years later to end any crusader existence in the coast of Palestine or the coastal martyrdom in Syria. And also, the moment the Mongol killed the last Abbasid Khalifa, they revived 
the Khilafid system and appointed a new Abbasid dynasty, but without having the same power, but as a protocol, as a spiritual. Also, the Mamluk was so interested in architecture that they developed a special style at that almost each Mamluk Amir wished really to immortalize himself through architecture and through charity. So whenever you speak about a building of a prince or Amir or a Sultan, you are speaking about an independent architectural complex which comprises if a chamber mausoleum, a facade, a fountain, a place for the students, a residential place. So it's like a sort of a funeral theological building. And through the system of the waqf, they secured the sustainability of such a building. Taitpai used to be one of the greatest sultans who was so enthusiastic, interested in architecture. To the extent that he constructed in 29 years his reign, more than 330 buildings. One of these important projects used to be in Jerusalem. He constructed a theological school, attributed to him Ashrafiyyah, with the fountain. And in the fountain, if you see its decorative arabesque design of the dome, it is the only example which exists out of Cairo. And that because Sultan decided to send a skillful team from Cairo to build his sultanic or imperial school to please or to really respond to his taste of architecture. And the school, in addition to the fountain itself, represent the zenith or the most sophisticated development of Mamluk architecture in Jerusalem as it is in Cairo or in Hebron or at Safad or at Gaza. So the school of Mamluk architecture is so famous. Really, it took its resources from the Saljuk, from different sources, from locality, but also they gave the foundation for the Ottoman architecture also, especially in Syria. So the Mamluk, if you will say Mamluk, it means to some extent also architecture. Yeah. This is, it used to be their uh, manner of life. Yeah. As it is today that someone should have a mobile or should have a Facebook or interest. This is, uh, to have money, it means you have to do architecture. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the Mamluk. So even Jerusalem architecture used to be it comprises half of all uh, other architecture of other dynasties. Yeah, I would, I would like to finish the podcast with the last question, which is also towards the end of times. There is the gate, the golden gate, which is closed, and it's called in Arabic Babel Rahma, if I say that correctly. It's interesting because in all three monotheistic religions, there is that idea that the end of times will come with a messiah, 
and then the deaf people will stand up, they'll be judged, and then there will be the concept of heaven and hell. So can you explain that from a Muslim point of view relating to that location, the Golden Gate? Actually, first of all, the architectural fabric of the gate most probably is Umayyad. However, there are different opinions. But one main question, which I keep raising for people, is this the architecture fabric which exists, which used to be described by travelers or historians, which speaks about the older gate? Is it the same? Because in this site, there are many versions and many narratives which speak about its implication, importance, and what you have just said concerning the last day, the day of resurrection, something. Most of all, I don't think that the people who spoke about the gate, it is not this recent gate. It is an earlier one. And one could ask, what is the date of this magnificent building? Is it Roman, pagan? If it's so, we know after Tita's destruction of the city of Jerusalem, we don't know any, any minor or major architectural project took place here. Is it a Byzantian, as it is said, could be Justinian, or could be Hadrian, or uh, Hadrian Roman, or could be uh, something. It's so difficult. How come you will construct a magnificent gate, a very beautiful one, with big columns, really, to the area which is dead, nothing inside it, completely deserted. So most probably, the recent gate is Umayyad. But in Islam, as it is uh, Christianity, Jewism, this valley, the valley of Yahushaft, or the valley of Jahannam, or the valley of Kadron, really as early as early prophets, both of them have the scenario that this is the place where the resurrection will take place. And we have a lot of scenarios, even in Islam, in Judaism. In Islam, it is called Asirat. Literally, Asirat, it means the bath, the road, the trail. But in Muslims' scenario or description, it is darker than a night, sharper than a sword, thinner than a thread. And people will be summoned while they are in cemeteries. And anyone who did good deeds, he will pass through this sirat, this bath, safely to reach Al-Aqsa Mosque. The bad, the wrongdoing will fall in the valley of Gehannam, which will took him 70 years and he will not reach the bottom. This is the Muslim scenario. So we have the Sirat. It means there are certain verses from the Quran which really attach what is mentioned in the Quran with this site. However, the Jewish scenario is completely different, but the same, that they have two bridges, one from iron and one from wood. The iron, it will be for the Goyim, the non-Jewish, 
and the wood will be for the Jewish people, the believers. So the Goyim, though it is an iron bridge, it will fall down. And the wood bridge will make the people safe and they will pass through the place. So they have different scenarios, beliefs. They tried really to imagine, to interrupt, to justify, to make it understandable, really, how the day of judgment will be. It has different context today. We have different uh, approaches of it. But at least this is used to be as a reflection of what sort of Bab al-Rahmi or Bab al-Tawbah. And for this, you see, Rahmi is mercy. Tawbah is repentance to be forgiving the do fault once again. And that gives you what is the sweetness of Jerusalem, really, apart from its political pollution. <laughs> Thank you so much for this interview. I feel like we could talk for more hours and hours and there are so many more things that I would like to ask you. But uh, limitation of time and also... Okay, we'll be also, <laughs> we'll respect the audience because they have also, uh, they have what to do for themselves. <laughs> so I really advise people to go and check out the social media of Stories from Palestine podcast for some of the videos that I took. And there is a lot of more information that people can find on the internet. I'll put some links in the show notes to explore that. Beautiful Haram al-Sharif more. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure, but be careful. Don't believe on what you read. Always make your mind, your heart judge. And always remember that any coin, it has a verse and a reverse. (laughs) (laughs) Best wishes for your listener and for your... uh, I do appreciate. Don't forget to check out the videos I made of my visit of the AXA compound on social media. You can see it on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and now I also have a TikTok account. You can find the links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Stories from Palestine. If you enjoy the podcast, then here are several things you can do to support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast. Share some of the social media posts on Instagram or Facebook. Start following the YouTube channel. You can also hear the podcast audio there. And soon I will start uploading videos. Sign up for the email list so that you get a reminder with a clickable link to the new podcast episode. And in the future, you will be updated about programs and trips that I will start to organize. And of course, you can donate to help me pay for hosting the podcast and the website and all the related recording costs. It's the only source of income I have at the moment, so you can imagine how much I appreciate every cup of coffee or falafel sandwich that you buy me on the coffee platform. All the links that you need can be found in the show notes and on the website storiesfrompalestine.info That's it. I hope you will tune in again next week. <laughs>